Hi, I'm Eric Goldwine, and you're listening to LTCCC's Nursing Home 411 podcast. Direct care workers are a critical yet undervalued part of the long-term care system. On this episode, I'm joined by one of those workers, Desma Reeves, a certified nursing assistant and a delegate for the Healthcare Workers Union 1199 SEIU, upstate New York. In the interview, we chat about her experiences as a CNA in a facility ravaged by COVID, the difficult trade-offs faced by nursing home staff, and how dangerous working conditions put nursing home residents in harm's way. Here's our music by Silverman Sound Studios. I'm here with, uh, or I'm on Zoom with Desma Reeves, uh, and you wear many hats. So you're a uh, CNA, which is a certified nursing assistant. You are a mother of four. You're a delegate for the 1199 SEIU Upstate New York. And what I want to ask you first about is uh, your role as you're you're a daughter-in-law of a nursing home resident. So before we get into your role as a staff member, I'm interested in in hearing about your experience with your mother-in-law in a nursing home. Well, actually, by the grace of God, she came home today. Um, this is the first time we were able to see her since she became a resident at the nursing home, since she had a stroke maybe four months ago. And um so it was just, it was really hard not to be able to get up there to visit her to make sure that she was okay because, you know, I am a CNA. Like I said, I work in the field and I know how the staffing conditions are at most of these places, you know. So, yeah, it, it's, it, it was really rough. And for the last year or so, what was the contact with her? Uh, it wasn't entirely through? Just telephone, mm-hmm. calling up to the nursing home itself and speaking to nurses, checking on her condition and her progress. You know, pretty much that's it. That was the only communication that the family had. Mm-hmm. And you're... Uh, ha- how does your uh, position, your experience, you have more than two decades of experience in in that setting, how did that shape how you um, navigated uh, the situation? Um, it was actually, <sighs> it's crazy because, you know, it was pretty rough for me. But like you say, I wear many hats. And I put on many different faces because I'm used to doing so. So with dealing with my fiance, which is his mother, okay, um, you know, it was more so of me dealing with a family member of a patient that I care for. It was some things that I would not even allow to conversate with him about you know, far as staffing conditions and what she might be going through because 
they didn't know. They haven't seen her. They can only go by what she was telling them or what the nurses were telling them. So to give my perspective on what I thought and pretty much knew what she was going through, <laughs> you know, I just wouldn't do it. So I, I held a lot of that in for myself. And I just decided to try to fight in other ways by just speaking up and, you know, letting my voice be heard in different aspects, you know, so that's mm -hmm. it. Right. So, and you're, you're a CNA, which is a certified uh, nursing assistant at Central Park Rehab and, and Nursing Center in Syracuse. Can you share what a, a CNA does uh, when you're, say you're in, you're in an, a, a long-term care facility, who, which, which person is the CNA? There's all sorts of staff members. Uh, yes. Okay. Well, the the CNA we provide uh, daily assisted living activities, as far as showering, bathing, feeding, um, dressing, you know, anything of that sort. Um, rehab therapy, you know, we do a lot. And um, some facilities, CNAs pass medicine. Some facilities you don't. I work in a long-term care facility where they have skilled nurses to provide medications to the patients. And the certified nurse's assistant, we basically just provide the daily living activities. As far as getting up every day, brushing your teeth, taking a shower, making your bed, putting on clean clothes, you know, whatever that patient is used to doing on a regular basis at home, we try to, you know, take care of them as such. You're as a CNA, you probably get get close to residents. You know, you know their name. They know your names. You mm -hmm. you know their stories. They start to learn your stories on a given day. Are you working with like ten residents, twenty? Like, what's a typical five? Uh, what's a typical? I have on. I've worked during to, during the day shift, which is from seven in the morning to three o'clock in the afternoon. And I have actually taken care of anywhere from eight patients to 20, depending on the staffing level. It will vary on the staff level. It'll vary. Yes, absolutely. Uh, it varies all the time. Never really in a long-term care facility would a CNA take care of less than eight patients. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's, that's basically the normal. Right. I understand your facility faced uh, understaffing issues uh, that were exacerbated back in the spring and and uh, and forward. Uh, how how many uh, residents were you seeing when it uh, at the peak? Um, yeah, at, at the peak of the pandemic or at the um, mm. when the staff was most stressed in terms of resource? Well, it, it's always been a staffing issue. You know, that's that's one of the main problems in nursing homes. It's always a staffing issue, you know. So, so before the pandemic, that was an issue, but it wasn't, you know, as bad as it had gotten when the pandemic hit. And <laughs> when the pandemic hit, oh, it, it was, it was pretty bad. It was pretty bad. You know, because you 
you know, you have your staff that's limited already and half of them are contracting COVID, you know, so they have to go out or they're forced to quarantine because someone in their household contracted COVID, you know, so it was just, it was a mess. And the fact that they were allowing all COVID patients to be admitted to the nursing homes from the hospitals and these nursing homes not having, uh, uh, they had the lack of knowledge on a real plan, you know, so it, it was just chaos. It, it was horrible. It's horrible. That's, I mean, I, I can't put it no other way. Yeah, I really can't. <laughs> and it got so uh, when we spoke uh, yesterday, you you, uh, you gave me some of the, the details, but it got so horrible that that staff like yourself were forced to make one of two. Uh, you had two bad options. You could either go into go into work in uh, hazardous conditions um, or you could not go into work and uh, when there's less staff out there, residents are in uh, worse shape. Can you talk about the, the trade-off, the, the calculations that go into that decision uh, as someone in your um, situation as uh, uh, dealing, you have children to take care of um, and support. What, uh, yeah, can you, can you go into your? Uh, yes, um, I'm trying to go into it without crying. So listen, <laughs> I've been a CNA for a long time. And I took care of a lot of people, you know, and I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I've been a pretty good caregiver, you know, and I've gotten close with a lot of patients, with a lot of people that I took care of. So, I mean, I've been on my job for 20 years, the same job for 20 years at the same facility. So to go through this and lose so many patients that I took care of because of this pandemic and the lack of just whatever these people didn't have and have to make the decision to just leave them because I have to care for my own family. And every day I sit here and I wonder, like, you know, these people are not getting the care that they need. And that's why it's so hard for me to have this conversation with my fiance because we have a relative that's in this situation. So I know when she calls and complains to me, I know some of it could be true. You know, not saying that these are bad people that's caring for these residents. They just doing the best that they can with what they have. You know, it's it's these owners that's able to buy up these facilities and not be held accountable for the lack of resources that they provide. Like you, you're able to own 12 and 13 facilities for what when you're not providing quality care whatsoever like you're not doing it at all 
when you can make statements about a juice machine that's broken that you're not going to replace because the staff broke it. Listen, these this is these people's homes. You're not hurting the staff by not replacing this juice machine. You're hurting them. So for me to have to walk away from that full time to part time is is hurtful because I know those residents need people like me. They need people like me, you know, but I, I have to care for my family. You know, I have to figure out how to do that. And that's what most of us did. Either we contracted COVID or we just made the decision to just do just that because we had no other choice. You know, there was no sympathy. There was no, there, there was nothing. It's just, okay, you know, hey, this is what it is, you know, so... Now it's just horrible everywhere. It's horrible. Right. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no. Uh, thanks for. Um, I appreciate you uh, you being open about that. And yeah, so you you moved from full time to to part time. Can you to um, per diem? So I work diem. actually twice a month. Okay. I, I I will. I'm only required to work twice a month, one major holiday a year. Mm-hmm. So that's all I do. I'll right. just go in twice a month. That's it. And that and that started. Uh, you moved there. I, at, I started that in May. Started that, and that was after you contracted uh, COVID. Mm-hmm. Okay. And was that the the reason? The can you uh, explain the the reason more specifically? It was it was the camel that broke the bag. <laughs> you know, that, that was the straw that broke the camel's back pretty much, you know. So <clears throat> before, like in, was it March? Early March. I think that's when everything hit because I remember my daughter's birthday is March 4th. She turned four years old and she was really sick with this virus. And, you know, they didn't know what the virus was when we took her to the doctors, you know. And um, it kept saying, well, she just kept spiking this high fever of 103, and it was constant, and it was for about two, two weeks, three weeks. They couldn't tell us what it was. They couldn't give her anything, you know, and she ended up breaking up with these fever sores all in her mouth, you know. So maybe a week after she was getting better, they came out with this COVID thing. Like, you know, it's COVID and they shut her daycare down and, you know, shut the schools down and all of this stuff. So now, you know, everybody's on the edge and I'm, I'm saying to myself, hmm, you know, maybe my daughter had this, you know, and I never got her tested, you know, or anything, you know, but maybe she had this, you know, and they, they just couldn't figure out what it was, you know, and um, but that was in March and they shut the schools down. But I continue to go to work because I had to. You know, I was an essential worker. My 18-year-old was 17 at the time, and um, he had to stay home and watch his sister. And that went on till May, you know. <laughs> and uh, it was hard because it's like he is not that responsible to stay home with a four-year-old, you know, and make sure that, you know, they're doing what they have to do. They didn't know what's what was going to happen with schools and, you know, all of this kind of stuff. So it was just really a lot. And then to 
go to work every day and everything was falling apart. You know, there's no staff, there's no management, you know, people are out. Oh, they're coming up to the floor saying this and giving you one reason of this and that. It was just, it was just so chaotic. You know, it really was to the point where people got scared. You know, we started getting scared for our lives. We didn't know what was going to happen. You know, they got these death tolls on the news every single day. We're looking at all of this stuff and it just became so surreal. It, it was just really like, wow, this is this is happening. So this is real. This is happening. So, you know, it just became so surreal and they broke up my unit that I normally work on and divided all of our patients and put them to COVID floors. So that told the story that we were working with COVID patients all along. <laughs> you know, if you decide to one day, literally one day, we had a conversation about why people don't want to float to COVID floors. They don't feel safe. You know, what are you going to do to protect them if they go up there? You know, it was these type of conversations. And, oh, no, we, we, we would never make you do that because we don't know what's going on according to the CDC and according to the CDC, you know. So we, we can't make you, we can't force you to work with COVID patients. So the next day, they came to us and said we had to work with COVID patients. <laughs> and everyone was like, uh, no. Um, are you sure? You know, are you sure this is what we have to do? They're like, yeah, you have to do it. So people were scared. They're like, no, I, I'm not going to do it because I don't know. Like, I don't know what's going to happen if I work with a COVID patient. I've never worked with a COVID patient. Am I supposed to be trained to work with a COVID patient? You know, it was just all kind of questions. And it was just a lot that particular day. And the very next day we came to work and all of our patients on that unit was moved to different floors. Half of them moved to a COVID floor, half of them would move to a non-COVID floor. But the moral of the story is that staff on that floor had to go up to those COVID floors anyway. You know, ended up having to do it anyway. And I was one of them and I ended up contracting COVID. And that just, that, that did it. <laughs> you know, I just, you know, I can't do this. Okay. So I had to, I had to make that decision. It was really, really, really hard. And it's still hard. You know, it's, it's really, it's, it's crazy. But, you know, what can you do? We're, so we're a resident advocacy nonprofit organization. And what the research says is that, uh, to summarize it, uh, it's, Better, uh, better working conditions, better care. And what I want to know from your perspective is, uh, are there any examples you can think of where the um, the challenging conditions for you as a staff member resulted in, or for you or for your your colleagues resulted in um, in poor care for? Residents, I, yesterday you actually uh, t told me a story about the uh, the dining room or the dining hall, uh, and that really stuck with me. Maybe you want to share that one, or maybe there's an, another that's on your mind. Yeah, uh, again, that has a lot to do with uh, 
lack of staff and poor wages. You know, like that all intertwines with with it all. And really now, <laughs> during this pandemic, you know, you you have to really pay attention to your staff and make sure you have these owners have to want to invest in their staff. They have to want to invest in the resources to provide quality care because if they don't, I don't see them, I don't see it happening. You know, I see certified nurses assistants and LPNs jumping from facility to facility because they can because of pay here and pay there when it all trickles down to low staffing and residents not getting the care that they're supposed to have, you know, and that's just pretty much what it is. And when you don't have the proper staff, that's when you start to obtain poor working conditions, you know, because if you had the adequate staff and people, the type of people that actually wants to work and do the job, you know, then the work conditions will be great because the CNAs and the LPNs, they provide those conditions, you know, where we, we can clean and, 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 and make beds and do laundry and, and provide good meals if we had the time, if we had enough staff to do so, you know, those things could happen. Can you uh, uh, kind of re retell the, the dining room example? Oh, yes, yes. Now, I came in to work on 11 to 7 shift, and um, dinner is served at 5.30 or either 6 o'clock. When I came in at 11 o'clock at night, there were at least 10 to 12 residents still up in the dining room with dinner still in front of them. One aid, mind you, that wasn't certified, you know, so that was, I guess, the reason why these people were left because she wasn't actually certified to touch them, you know, so yeah, this, this is the stuff that happens in these facilities. And we close our interviews with our recommendations. I want to know uh, uh, if there's a movie or a book or a, a album, or is there anything you'd, you'd recommend? <laughs> um, I, I just have got through reading this 90 day devotional called a woman's purpose of power. <laughs> and it's, it's really good. You know, it's really good. And it, it talks to you a lot about finding your purpose on how to, you know, deal with society, you know, and I've been trying to figure that out since I've been having so much time on my hands, you know, <laughs> so I've been reading that and it's really good. I would suggest that any, it's for men or women, but it's called a woman of purpose and power. But um, yes, it's a 90 day devotional. It's really, it's really a good book by Dr. Miles Stevens. Great. And is that the, the four-year-old in the, in the background? Or? Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> you see what I have to go through? Uh, well, the, the, that's, that's their podcast debut. Um, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's their podcast debut, but thanks so much for uh, sharing your, your story. I really appreciate it. And yeah, thank you. Thank you, Eric.